And whether you're here for six weeks or three months, we are well into the retreat. And I think most of you have seen by now that, especially on a long retreat like this one, that the practice doesn't unfold in a kind of a steady progression towards more calm, more peace, more equanimity. So these cycles, they're cycles in our retreat. It gets smooth and then it gets challenging and then it's smooth again and then it gets challenging again. So these cycles, in these cycles, within these cycles, one component or frequent component, I should say, a frequent component of these cycles is the mind state of aversion. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. I think as you're all aware by now, aversion comes up a lot in our practice, possibly some more than others. There is a a kind of a sense that we each have our own proclivities, our own favorite challenges. Some of us tend more towards the aversion side, some more towards the greed side, some more towards the delusion side, but we all have all three of these aspects in our experience. And I'd like to focus tonight on the aversion coming up. It comes up for us a lot. We, we react to physical pain with aversion. We react to what other people do, sometimes the food. We react to our own states of mind. The reactions to these can be obvious or subtle. Sometimes the reactions might be as clear-cut as anger or fear. Or sometimes it might be more subtle, just a subtle wishing that things were a little bit different. You're basically, with your experience, able to be mindful and that there's just this subtle kind of sense of, hmm, it was better yesterday. So sometimes with aversion... I think Carol referred to this in a a way the other day. We think we need to get rid of the aversion in order to practice, that somehow the aversion is in our way or any of the hindrances are in our way of practice. And that, well, yeah, okay, I can be mindful of the aversion, but when that gets past, that's when the real practice will begin. It can kind of feel like second-class practice if we're working with states of aversion or any state of difficulty. And what I hope to convey this evening is that it's not a second-class practice. In fact, very deep insight can come directly through being mindful of aversion. So aversion is a reaction to something that we don't like. Typically, that something is an unpleasant experience, some kind of unpleasant experience. I'm going to read you from the suttas. 
That's a section of the sutta that I referred to in the question and answer the other morning. The Buddha says, the uninstructed worldling, that's someone who is a normal person, (laughs) the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The instructed noble disciple, too, feels a painful, pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Therein, what is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling? And he goes on to say, When the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments, He weeps, beating his breast and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart. So that man would feel the feeling caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily feeling and a mental one. Being contacted by that painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. Then he goes on to talk about the instructed noble disciple. When the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he does not, does not sorrow, grieve, or lament. He does not weep, beating his breast, and become distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, but they would not strike him with this immediately afterwards with a second dart. So that man would feel a feeling caused by one dart only. So too, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that painful feeling, he harbors no aversion towards it. Kind of a... Amazing to think about, isn't it? (laughs) No aversion towards unpleasant experience. So this story that the Buddha is telling is essentially a story of reactivity. We react to unpleasant experience. Life will give us a certain amount of unpleasant experience. That is a given, in a sense. That unpleasant experience may be actual painful bodily experience. It might come because of the ending of something pleasant. It might come from the fear that having something pleasant and fear of losing it. And typically we react to this unpleasantness by wanting to get rid of it, by clinging to things that are pleasant, So, for example, I I mentioned this the other morning, I think, if you injure yourself, if you damage your body in some way, there will be painful feeling. That painful feeling is simply part of the way the body is designed. It's designed to produce painful feeling when we're injured. But we, we don't typically just feel a painful feeling. We react to it. How stupid that was of me to not see that the pavement was uneven and I fall down. So we, we berate ourselves. 
And we don't even stop there. That, that kind of berating ourselves is what we might call the second arrow, the second dart. We add a third, a fourth, a fifth dart. We are angry at ourselves for being self-critical. We feel sad at ourselves, sad for feeling angry at ourselves. This can go on and on and on. So this cycle can continue. This cycle of reactivity, stabbing, it's essentially as if we are stabbing ourselves with multiple darts. So paying attention to this reactivity, paying attention to this aversion with mindfulness begins to open a space around our experience and our reaction to it. And this is what I'd like to explore this evening. Aversion seems to have some of its roots, at least in our biology. Just the fact of that our physical body produces painful experience. And very naturally that we want to protect ourselves the body in some way seems to be designed to, uh, the body and mind seem to be designed to protect ourselves. So there's a very natural wanting to avoid unpleasant experience. And sometimes we, it almost feels hardwired, but it isn't hardwired. It's possible to experience unpleasant experience without that quick movement to the reactivity, the need, the, the pushing away. As my uh, colleague Gil Fransdahl sometimes says, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Beyond this sense of our physical survival, the aversion that comes into play around our bodily, protecting our body. It seems also that we have a need to protect our identities. I was reading a book about how neuroscientists understand the self to be a construct in the brain. And one of the things I found interesting was that the the, um, the pattern of the physical body being represented in the brain. As the brain got more and more sophisticated, the representation in the brain of our body became more and more sophisticated. And that essentially, the patterns that protect us, the fear, the aversion, are designed to protect that representation more than they're actually designed to protect the physical body. And this, I think, is how our minds make the leap to identities and the the sense of identity being something that really needs to be protected. We cling to our identities. They're very near and dear to us. And if they're threatened, if our identities become threatened, it's as if our physical being is threatened. So this kind of aversion can also arise because of our sense of identity is threatened. They don't have a right to do that. Aversion can function sometimes as a signal that something needs to be attended to. This is 
this is important, I think, you know, partly coming from the um, kind of the roots it has in our biology, aversion can be a signal that something needs to be taken care of. It's well worth paying attention to aversion. As we turn a mindful attention to aversion, to the aversion itself, without the agenda of wanting to get rid of it, which is just more aversion, the aversion itself becomes the real practice. When there's aversion arising in our minds, that is the real practice. That is what we are encouraged to pay attention to. The first noble truth Sally talked about the other night. Understand suffering. When aversion is happening, there is suffering in the mind. So this aversion is meant to be understood. So when we are turning our attention to understand aversion, it no longer functions as what we could call a hindrance anymore. When aversion is not seen, it is hindering our our practice. It's hindering our ability to be present for experience. But when we see aversion, it no longer hinders us. And even in the midst of observing and exploring, understanding aversion, deep insight can arise. So one of the first steps to understanding our aversion is to begin to recognize it in our experience. Aversion has many flavors. And uh, after hearing a talk by Carol at one point, I decided to make a list of all of the ones that I was familiar with. So I'm going to read that list. Fear, anger, bitterness, resentment, hostility, dislike, rage, irritation, annoyance, worry, hatred, distrust, cruelty, discontent, frustration, aversion, dissatisfaction. Then I went to the thesaurus. I got some more. (laughs) Loathing, disapproval, Disgust, fury, disrespect, disparagement, contempt, humiliation, unkindness, meanness, spitefulness, disdain, disquiet, anxiety, apprehension, dread, distress. Many, many, many flavors, from the subtle to the obvious. Boredom can also be a manifestation of aversion. It might simply be a kind of a disconnect, kind of a a manifestation of delusion, but it can also be a manifestation of aversion where what's happening in our present moment experience is just not quite what we'd like it to be. So we move into boredom. Impatience can also be an expression of aversion. 
it can be an expression of greed, as in you know, being impatient for something uh, wonderful to happen. That happens to me occasionally. You know, when I was a kid, I definitely was impatient for, for the holidays to arrive. But more often in my own experience, I've seen the impatience around wanting something to be over that's unpleasant. Even something as simple as brushing my teeth. You know, I've got better things to do than brush my teeth. So, you know, impatience can be uh, also a manifestation of aversion. So beginning to recognize your own familiar versions, flavors of aversion can help you begin to recognize it as it arises in your mind. It's very powerful to just even simply recognize this state in the mind. Just a simple recognition. It starts to create some spaciousness around the experience. In the very early days of my practice, before I had any real meditation instruction, I had read a book that talked about being mindful of your experience. And I didn't really understand what mindfulness was, but I was willing to try anything because I pretty much felt like I'd hit bottom. Uh, Anger was just ruling my life and making uh, making me non-functional at times. I would find myself sitting in front of the computer just frozen with rage going in my mind. So I decided I would start, I had read this book and decided I would start observing anger in my experience. Only I didn't know what it meant to be mindful. <laughs> I, had, I, I mean, I hadn't had any instructions at this point. Somebody had sent me this book. I was in the middle of the South Pacific. I was in the Peace Corps. This was all I had, this book. and. Uh, I remember the very first time I remembered that I had decided I would pay attention to this anger. So I was sitting there and I was just fuming. And at some point the memory arose, I remembered, oh yeah, I said I was going to pay attention to this. And at that point there was so much anger in my mind. All I could do pretty much was say was, yeah, I'm angry. Oh, this is really unpleasant. This doesn't feel good. What am I supposed to do with this anyway? That was about all I could do with it. And after some seconds of kind of sitting there in that space, I thought, well, I guess I go back to work. I don't know what I do with this. In retrospect, even that very first time, I see that it gave me enough space, just that recognition, oh yeah, I'm angry. Just that recognition gave me enough space to be able to go back to work. And I kept going with this over the course of several months, just noticing that anger when it arose. And what I began to notice and recognize was that it seemed, just through this simple willingness to recognize anger, and not even having all the tools of mindfulness that you all have, just the simple recognition, that the mindfulness began to recognize the pattern of anger earlier in the cycle of anger. And so the mind didn't spin out quite so much anymore. I saw the direct benefits of mindfulness in that I was no longer ruled by the anger and it wasn't taking me to that non-functional space anymore. Just the simple recognition 
That simple recognition is very powerful. It's very important within our practice, particularly on retreat, to also begin to recognize, and we've talked about this a lot, so I'm just going to mention this briefly to kind of fill out this talk to to make sure it's complete. To also recognize when there is aversion in your relationship to your experience. If there's a struggle happening in your meditation, check your relationship with your experience. There may be some kind of aversion happening. It may also be greed or delusion. But check and see, is there some kind of aversion happening, hidden in the way that we're attending to experience? It's really prevalent. I've heard it in a lot of your interviews, paying attention even, even to something not terribly challenging, you know, the, just, just some small pain or something, and, and noticing it, able to be with it, not particularly difficult to be with it, and yet a very subtle sense of, yeah, I wish this wasn't here. That very subtle sense, I wish this wasn't here, is a form of aversion and needs to be recognized, open to. That may be all that's needed, to just acknowledge, yeah, there's aversion here. There's a little bit of this not wanting happening in my mind. So recognizing that aversion is happening is crucial. In working with aversion, working with this can be challenging mind state, really helpful to bring a sense of acceptance, allowing kindness, compassion to this state of mind. Turning to recognize this experience in the mind and body in the present moment. One key to this exploration of aversion is turning the attention away from the thing that we are averse to. There's something often in our experience or in our environment that is triggering the aversion. It may be be the way somebody is taking their food in the dining hall. It may be the way somebody is walking. It may be something that's happening in your own body. In working with aversion, it's helpful to take the attention out of the thing that is kind of the trigger for the aversion and turn the attention to the experience of the aversion itself. Taking the attention out of that and placing it, turning it back towards the mind and body. How does it feel in the mind and body? Aversion feels like this. With aversion, often, both the aversion and the thing that we don't like are both unpleasant. This is the, essentially the two darts. There's something that we're responding to, and that's unpleasant. And then the aversion is unpleasant. So it kind of gets a, a, a positive feedback loop going here. Because of this, because that they're both unpleasant, they, it's, it's, it seems to be multiplicative. You know, it multiplies the intensity of the unpleasantness 
when we react to an unpleasant experience with aversion. So an, uh, because of this, attending to aversion can be difficult because we see, we see how unpleasant it is. But we do start to see as we bring our mindfulness to the aversion that what we're experiencing, the unpleasantness that's experienced with mindfulness is in a way, it's, it's somehow like it's less out of control than it is when the aversion is just running on its own. And we begin to see that this kind of suffering that we experience around observing the aversion, the kind of unpleasantness that we experience, is what some people call the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So we begin to see that being mindful of our aversion gives us a pathway towards freedom from suffering. And as we see this, as we see the benefit that it brings to be mindful of our aversion, it's almost like the aversion starts to trigger the mindfulness. At least that's been my experience. That if any kind of uh, difficulty begins to arise in my experience, it's like, oh, mindfulness is pretty much right there. Becomes a mindfulness bell becomes a very strong incentive for mindfulness. When we're experiencing aversion, I think, as many of you have seen in your experience, there's a lot, often a lot of thinking can be there. Not always, but very often there's a lot of thinking. Why did they do that? They shouldn't have done that. I was right about that. They were wrong. That was a really unpleasant thing that they did. So we often can get lost in the narrative, the story, the thoughts around the aversion. It's really helpful to not put the attention there, turn the attention towards the bodily experience. How is this aversion manifesting in the body? Aversion is a mental state, but it does create bodily experience. So noticing the immediacy of the emotion in the body. Anger might feel like tightness and heat. Fear like contraction in the the abdomen or tightness in the throat. So bringing our attention to the physical sensations helps us to let go of that narrative. And the narrative itself is one of the fuels for the pattern. And so turning our attention away from the narrative and towards the bodily experience gives us a way to let go of the fuel. The bodily experience is kind of a a result, in effect, of the manifestation of the emotion. And turning our attention towards that can be a way for us to just allow it to kind of flow in our experience as opposed to continuing to churn it up. So turning attention to the sensations in the mind, in the body, 
turning our attention to the physical sensations. Really helpful in doing this practice to be very clear that what you're paying attention to is physical experience, not mental experience. And so, for instance, if you are noticing that there's fear and you're paying attention to the contraction in your abdomen, Know with the mindfulness, if you're using the noting, this becomes easier in a way. Know that the mindfulness is observing physical experience, not the fear itself. So if you're using the noting, you could note contraction, contraction, as opposed to fear, fear. This is, it seems like a fine point, but this is actually more important than you might think. It does a couple of, it serves a couple of purposes. First, it helps us to distinguish to disentangle from the inversion, because the physical experience is not the aversion, it's a physical manifestation. And the other thing is it helps to clarify the mindfulness. So we know at the moment what we are paying attention to is the physical experience, not the mental experience. This has actually been quite important in my own practice. On one retreat here, I was waiting for an interview. And uh, often, as I think many of you have also had the experience before the interview, I was experiencing anxiety. So I was sitting there waiting for the interview and noting anxiety, anxiety, anxiety is happening. And this interview before me happened to go on for quite a long time, so I got to pay attention to this for a really long time. So I was just noting, 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 anxiety, 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 and it didn't change much. And this actually kind of surprised me because by this point in the retreat, often if I really clearly met something with mindfulness, it began to shift and change. So I got interested in the fact that it wasn't particularly changing. And I began to pay more attention actually to the physical manifestation of the experience in the body the body was experiencing a kind of quivering. The whole body was quivering. And as I connected to that quivering experience directly, letting go of the label anxiety, I realized that what was happening was rapture, not anxiety. The situation had fooled me, in a sense. The context of where I was, having experienced anxiety in that situation many times, And so this attending directly to the physical sensations can also actually help us to clarify what's actually happening for us. If we have assumptions about what's happening, if we assume that it's anxiety or some other experience, that can almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So just connecting with the physical experience, just connecting with it, noticing that, Since the kind of connection between the aversion, what we react to, is the unpleasantness, there's the unpleasantness and then the aversion is the response to the unpleasantness, really helpful to pay attention to unpleasant experience. On one retreat, Carol was sitting up here and giving a Dharma talk about aversion. And she, one line that I still remember from that talk was, if you're experiencing aversion, there's something unpleasant in your experience that's not been noticed. 
So this is actually interesting. You know, when we're experiencing aversion, sometimes we're not actually aware of what it is we are reacting to. This can be a very interesting exploration. When there's something unpleasant happening, when there's aversion happening, see if you can kind of recognize what it is unpleasant in your experience that you're responding to. Not long after that talk that Carol gave, I was doing walking meditation in this uh, walking room out here. And it was pretty crowded in the room. And uh, we were doing walking, and we were kind of close to each other. And then somebody came up and slipped in between me and the person next to me. And, oh, the aversion just surged. And um, it's like, okay, there's aversion. So what's unpleasant here in my experience? And um, I had a kind of a um, sense that it wasn't so much just that the person had come in close, but that there was something about this particular person that was, was... bothering me. And so I began exploring my sense doors. Not particularly, the person wasn't particularly unpleasant to look at. There wasn't any particular unpleasant smell. Um, They weren't bumping into me, so there wasn't any unpleasant physical contact. And uh, I was, I just kept walking. It's like I ruled out all the sense doors. There wasn't anything unpleasant in my physical sense experience. I thought, well, it must be something in my mind. You know, I hadn't really seen it. You know, I hadn't seen what it was. So I just thought, okay, well, I'll just kind of keep an eye out for thoughts, things going on in my mind while I'm doing this walking meditation and feeling the aversion. And at some point, doing the walking, I didn't see many thoughts at first doing this walking. I, this thought came up. He's weird. <laughs> so, oh, there's a thought. <laughs> And I still didn't quite connect the aversion to that thought. But, you know, I just kept walking. And then, then there was the next thought that came up was, he's walking in bare feet and it's freezing cold out. This was my justification for weirdness. <sighs> so I saw this kind of whole thing. And as I actually saw that, what I realized was that I was averse to an experience in my mind. I was averse to something happening in my own mind. It was so clear to me that this was a construct in the mind that I was averse to. And as I saw that, the entire thing fell apart. And in the very next pass, there was a spontaneous metta to this person. So exploring for that unpleasant It can actually be in our ideas more times than you might think. What is the unpleasantness we're actually responding to? One evening at my home, I was having some insomnia, and often when I have insomnia, what I do is I meditate. And so I had gotten up to meditate, and... I was in my meditation posture, and I heard this very slight tapping sound. This was, you know, middle of the night, some, you know, probably half hour or so into my meditation. I heard this very slight tapping sound. It's very quiet. And uh, the experience was that the hearing, the sound itself, was unpleasant. 
I didn't like it. Just noticing that unpleasantness, noticing hearing as unpleasant, kept, kept meditating. And the next time that the tapping came up, it was kind of intermittent. The next time the tapping came up, I noticed a contraction in the body when the tapping came. And the, the, the contraction was unpleasant. So I noticed that. I noticed the contraction. I noticed the unpleasantness of the contraction. And then at one point when the tapping came back, I noticed a very quick burst of fear. And the fear was definitely unpleasant. Then when I noticed the tapping the next time, having observed and worked with the fear a little bit, it wasn't a strong fear, but it was there. The next time the tapping came back, I realized that the tapping itself was not unpleasant. It was actually even slightly pleasant, you know, just this quiet little tapping. Again, reacting to something in the mind. Very interesting. The unpleasantness wasn't in the sense experience. The unpleasantness was in the mind, the reaction in the mind. Our strongest patterns, habits of mind, the ones that really bite us, that grip us, come back over and over again, sometimes seem to come out of nowhere, as if they're somehow lurking in our subconscious, just ready to to come up. We have the sense sometimes of these very deep ruts in our minds. Observing strong pattern in my own experience, something that I have really come to appreciate is that even though these patterns are kind of deeply conditioned, we've practiced them a lot. There's a lot of causes and conditions from our past that lead lead us to react in a certain way. In a sense, there are kinds of ruts in our mind. We've practiced a pattern over and over and over again so that you know, the, the neurological explanation for this is that all the, when we practice a pattern a lot, the nerves in the, in the brain say, well, this is a really important pattern. I'd better shore this one up. So you know, we practice something a lot, a particular kind of reactivity, reactivity a lot. The pattern gets very ingrained in the brain. So in a, in a sense, the, those patterns are there in the brain, and yet... If we're not activating that particular pattern, it's not happening. And one thing that I've seen in my experience over and over again, I've seen this enough to have a deep sense of confidence in this, that when we are experiencing a a habitual pattern, a very strong habitual pattern, that it is being created in the present moment. The suffering of that pattern, that arising of that experience is happening in the present moment because of causes that are arising in the present moment. So for example, I have, a, have had a very strong pattern around feeling like I'm a failure at practice. Is this familiar to any of you? <sighs> So I would see this come up over and over again in my practice. And then at one point, I was doing, um, I was sitting a three-month course re, uh, here, and I was 
in the gym. My room was in the gym, which is just below the Catskills. And uh, I went downstairs one afternoon and walked through the door. I just pushed the door open in the gym and actually watched the construction of the pattern of I'm a failure happen as I pushed the door open in the gym. What happened in my mind was that a memory arose of some days before when I had been going through that door in a really concentrated state. Having seen that memory, my mind then immediately compared my present state to that state and found it wanting. Not as concentrated as I was two days ago, three days ago. You're a failure. So I could clearly see that there was a trigger. There was something happening in the present moment. A, a, a thought arose in the present moment that there was a reaction to. So I began kind of getting interested in these triggers. When this pattern came up, I was, I was, I was clear that there was something happening in the present moment. It wasn't just kind of some pattern waiting to spring up. although it can be at times. I'll go to the, into that in a minute. It, it had, there is a kind of a trigger that happens there. So kind of being alert, attuned to those triggers. So this is really, I want to just restate this. It's really important that while there are conditions in the past that may incline us towards particular habits or patterns of mind, the experience of that habit a re-arising of a pattern, you're a failure, you're, um, I, hate, I hate myself, I'm depressed, whatever our favorite pattern is. There may be causes in the past that incline us towards that pattern, but the arising of it happens in the moment. There are causes in the moment that make that pattern happen. Everything that you need to know about that pattern is happening in the present moment. It's not actually necessary with our mindfulness practice to go back and dig and think about, well, why am I this way? Why do I feel like I'm a failure? Oh, it must have to do with when I was a kid and in school and all the kids teased me all the time. Thinking about that is not so helpful in our mindfulness practice. Noticing what's happening in the moment as the pattern arises, very helpful. We begin to see the conditions, the causes in the moment for that pattern to come to be. And by witnessing this with mindfulness, these patterns begin to slowly, slowly, slowly unravel. This kind of recognition, my seeing this, seeing that thought arise, followed by the comparing, followed by the response of feeling like I'm a failure, was watching cause and effect happen in the mind. This is insight, direct insight into the unfolding, impersonal nature of our experience, right in the midst of observing aversion. Sometimes when things are neutral, another place that strong habits can come into being is when there's just kind of neutral experience. And I find that when experience is neutral, it's almost as if the, you know, in, the, in that neutral experience, our, our neural circuits are just kind of you know, wandering around to see where they can hook. 
something like that. So I find often that when things start to get really neutral, some of my, my strongest patterns can arise just in a split second. So I began kind of getting interested in how this happens. Again, I saw actually some of the triggers that happened. So one, one retreat at Spirit Rock, I was doing walking meditation and had moved into a space where there's quite a bit of neutral happening on this particular retreat. And I had heard enough Dharma talks by this point to have the idea that when it starts to get really neutral, it means maybe something good is going to happen. So I started, you know, oh, it's neutral. Kind of leaning in, waiting, you know. Sometimes I would notice this waiting, you know, just recognize, oh, waiting, waiting, waiting is happening. Other times it would slip by unnoticed. And I, what, I, what I saw happening was that in this space of neutral, with that waiting for something really good to happen, when nothing really good happened, my pattern, you're a failure, came up. On this particular retreat, my mindfulness was clear enough that I had to laugh. It was, it was just, it, it amused me that out of nothing, my mind could create this pattern of I'm a failure. So looking at neutral can also be an interesting place to watch where our particular forms of strong habits arise, whether they are greed or aversion, whatever your strong habits are, looking in that field of neutral can be a very interesting place to see how our minds construct these patterns in the moment. Sometimes these states of aversion can get kind of overwhelming. Sometimes the aversion can be stronger than our ability of to, be, to be mindful. So it can be helpful to have some skillful means for working with states like this. And this can happen at any time. It may happen in the middle of a long retreat or it may happen at home when you're in your daily lives. So one thing I found particularly helpful in my own experience when a, a pattern arises that's, in my case, um, the pattern that I was observing was Anger, anger was my favorite. Anger coming up around a particular situation. What I found helpful after a while of realizing that when I tried to bring mindfulness to that experience, it like sucked me in. It it was the, 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 the anger was stronger than my ability to be mindful of it. And so I began to realize it wasn't so helpful to try to be mindful as long as that anger had the upper hand. And so what I began doing was to turn my attention to something neutral in my experience. I turned my attention, in this case, to my feet, because often it seemed that my pattern of anger was arising when I was walking. And so just putting my attention in my feet on the ground, just allowing that anger to be there, to not push it away. This kind of redirecting of attention needs to be done skillfully. It can't be done with the sense of, I can't feel you, this is bad, I can't feel this anger. It needs to be done really gently, kind of more as a not now, not now. The way I did this with my own anger, I kind of initially had a conversation with it. I'll pay attention to you when my mindfulness gets stronger. In the meantime, I'm going to put my attention in my feet. And that hole got collapsed to not now. Very gentle way of just redirecting my attention to my feet. This was really helpful. 
this pattern unfolded over the course of months, I saw that essentially what I saw is that pattern of anger arising less frequently in my experience. Until one day I recognized, wow, I haven't felt that in a long time. And it was gone. I didn't believe it. I kind of was like, where did it go? Even bringing the person up in my mind didn't create the anger. And this all unfolded by just doing that gentle letting go, gentle putting aside. So that also can be very powerful. We don't actually have to confront these things directly. It's more not engaging, not entwining with that's most important. And for me at that time, not entwining meant putting my attention someplace else. So in this, sometimes people ask me, well, how about the breath? How, how about if I put my attention on the breath? If you find that that works for you, great. But I often find that with strong emotions, if you put your attention on the breath, a lot of the strong emotional experiences felt physically in the realm of the torso. And if you're paying attention to your breath in the area of the torso, sometimes that can just draw you right back in to that experience. And so I found putting my attention somewhere in the periphery of my body, my feet, my hands, perhaps sound, was very helpful. Explore for yourselves what what works. You could also redirect to metta if that is a a practice that really resonates for you. Um, That is kind of the traditional antidote to aversion, is bringing metta into the mind. In my own experience, I found that I was so averse to doing metta that that wasn't helpful for me. So I just let that go and just put my attention in neutral experience. Something that has come as kind of a surprise to me in my own practice, but now having seen it several different ways, several different times, I have begun to appreciate that sometimes aversive mind states can be a reaction to wholesome states of mind. We can be averse to the feeling of love, the feeling of generosity, the feeling of happiness believe it or not. So I've seen this enough in my own mind to recognize that when I'm experiencing aversion, you know, sometimes we have this sense or this notion that when we're experiencing aversion, that it's like there's this complex of stuff that's happening and what everything that's in there is all got to be, you know, unskillful, unwholesome, And what we need to do is like get the good scalpel out and cut out the whole thing and get rid of it. What I've begun to recognize in my own experience is that sometimes that aversion can be masking a wholesome state. I'll give an example of this, one example from my experience. On one retreat, I was noticing depression arising pretty frequently, especially while I was walking. This was in Burma at the Shui Umin Monastery. And in that monastery, there's an evening period of time where people kind of walk together in pairs or threes. And there's talking. Talking is allowed at that monastery. And, and I would particularly find it 
the, the depression arising when I noticed people talking together. You know, I came up with some idea about, you know, exclusion from when I was in a kid, you know, a kid in high school and feeling left out and this is why the depression is. And I said, you know, I've had enough experience to realize that's not so helpful. I don't know that. That's just an idea. So let's just observe this depression. Let's see what's happening. So I just began observing it, getting, I spent quite a bit of time noticing resistance to depression first, you know, that, that, that there was the depression and some resistance to it. So noticing that resistance. And at some point I began to see kind of just deep sensations in the area of the heart. This kind of contraction feeling, unpleasant contraction feeling around the heart. And during one sitting, finally, after several weeks of watching this, observing this, I felt this sensation of this contraction just completely, be completely not resisted at all just completely not resisted this feeling in the, in the area of the heart. And it got big, this feeling of this almost painful contraction just grew and grew. And it was so, it was, it was easy to let that happen because there was no resistance. And it grew and it grew and it got really big. And then it flipped into metta. The next thought in my mind, this beautiful, expansive feeling of suffusing metta, this is stupid, this is sappy, this is corny. <laughs> I recognize in that moment that I had some resistance to that quality of metta. And having recognized that, I didn't actually see a direct connection between that, you know, that kind of reaction to the metta and the depression. But having seen that, the depression stopped happening. I'm not saying I was living from then on into this beautiful, expansive state of, of metta. I realized, wow, I've got some work to do here. But I've seen this happen more than once, that underneath some kind of aversive state of mind can be a very beautiful state of mind. By going in and through and not resisting, we may open to something really beautiful. So sometimes we hear that when concentration is strong, the hindrances are at bay. So concentration is strong, I'm not going to be experiencing aversion. And then we hear that concentration is needed for insight to arise. And we put these together and we think, if I'm experiencing aversion, there's no way I can have insight. This is, yeah, I can be with my aversion, but there's no way I'm going to learn anything here. The learning has to happen later when, you know, my mind is completely balanced and equanimous. That's when the insight will happen. Well, I've seen in my own experience that when we can be with our aversive states without resistance, deep insight can happen. I'll tell you one This will be my last story from my own practice. On a three-month course, this was my self-hatred retreat. (laughs) Not that that was the only time I ever experienced self-hatred, but it came up a lot on this retreat. I got to see it from so many different angles. 
it would come, it would go, I would see it when it came. And, you know, it was initially, there was definitely this sense of, oh, well, okay, I guess this is my self-hatred retreat, but, you know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't really trust at that point the depth of insight that could come from really just meeting this, ex- this kind of experience. So it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess there's not going to be any, you know, deep insight here, but I guess I'll be with my self-hatred. So over and over again, just working with it, working with it, working with it. And then one night in the hall, Joseph was doing a question and answer, and he talked about a pattern that he'd had that was really stuck, a place where he got really stuck. And he came up with this tool for himself that seemed very helpful when when he got really stuck. And it was what he called a double noting. So he would note the contact of the thing that was he was reacting to, and then the feeling tone. For him, it was, it was lust. And so he would note, note contact pleasant, contact pleasant. And the double notes seemed to really bring him right into the experience, make it a little bit easier to just be right with the experience. And so having heard that, I, I was leaving the hall, actually, walking up the little stairs out into the cloakroom, and as I took those steps up the stairs, I felt the self-hatred descend. And it's like I felt powerless over it. It just came crashing in. But my mindfulness was pretty clear. I went back to my room, and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to be with this. You know, okay, I'm just going to be with this. And I started using that double noting that Joseph had talked about. Whenever I saw the mind wavering towards even the, the, the subtlest of thought, you're no good, you're a failure, I hate you, you're a bad person, whatever thought, would, even just the slightest movement towards that, I would know contact unpleasant, contact unpleasant. And in the process of this, at some moment, I heard the people coming back from the late night sitting. I was sitting in my room and I thought, you know, it's 10 o'clock, time to go to bed. And it's like, no, I'm just going to stay here, just stay here with this. So it felt like there was something happening. Just was contact unpleasant, contact unpleasant. At some moment in seeing that, something, something, the mindfulness just completely saw the arising of this pattern of self-hatred, and I can't even describe to you how it saw that. But what it saw in that moment was this is just a construct of the mind. It's just a thought. Seeing that, basically that kind of emptiness of that thought, it's just a thought. The very next moment, the mind, the body was flooded with bliss. Split second from self-hatred to bliss. It was the subtlest feeling of, oh, never again. (laughs) Then there was a recognition, oh, no, this insight, too, is impermanent. And then the, the bliss kind of moved into more just a balance and equanimity. I didn't really trust that, I mean, I didn't, didn't really believe in that moment that that had uprooted that pattern of self-hatred. And it hadn't. But it was a couple of years before I experienced self-hatred. And, and then when I began seeing it, it was the subtlest forms of just little thoughts. You're no good. And there was no belief in those thoughts anymore. So that, that moment of 
observing that pattern of self-hatred. Deeply, deeply cut into that pattern. Radically transformed my relationship to myself. This happened through the willingness to be with the aversion. When aversion is happening, our path is being with the aversion. And truly attending to these states with mindfulness, with compassion, with kindness can lead us towards some very deep insights and freedom. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.